Good morning. It's a Tuesday and time for Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com and streaming around the world at NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. Dot com. And uh, very pleased this morning to uh, welcome John Broderick to uh, Kale and Company. The company, Mr. Broderick, is the Senior Director of External Affairs at Dartmouth Health, formerly served as the Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And for the past six and a half years, he has traveled throughout northern New England on a mission to change the culture and conversation about mental illness in an effort to destigmatize it and uh, he says it's the most important work he's done in his entire professional life. So it is my pleasure today to welcome John Broderick to the show. John, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Ken. It's great to be with you today, and uh, I look forward to our discussion. Well, a- as do I. I saw you uh, a couple of weeks ago at Gibson's uh, downtown with uh, with your, your new book. Uh, tell us about the book, first sure. of all. No, happy to do that. Uh, After uh, six years of traveling around New England in my black Jeep, I've driven about 100,000 miles over that time. I've visited 350 middle schools and high schools where I've spoken, uh, and I've hugged thousands of kids, literally. Probably hugged more kids in New England than anyone alive. Uh, (laughs) And it all relates to mental health awareness. And so during COVID, during the height of COVID, can I ask Dartmouth Health if I could reduce the writing the experiences that I've had over that time. And they said, sure. And then I found out it's easier to say you're going to write a book than to write a book. (laughs) And so uh, once they gave me the green light, I started doing that. So I wrote a book about those last six years. And the book really is in a couple of parts. The first part of the book is taking people, I hope, at my elbow into gyms and auditoriums, into some of those confided conversations Mm -hmm. with young people. So they have a sense of what that was like and what they were saying. And the second part of the book is, so what does that all mean? What do I think is happening to young people? And uh, Dartmouth published it, and needless to say, I was delighted to have them do that. It's been the most important work of my life. Yeah, and uh, I know you've said that repeatedly, and uh, you have touched the lives of so many now over the last uh, six and a half years, and we'll touch more now with with the book. Share your own family's experience with uh, with mental illness. Sure. Um, I, I'm a middle-class kid. I grew up in a middle-class family in Massachusetts. And, uh, oh, you can say Wakefield. I don't mind. I grew up in Wakefield. I did. I and I grew up in Melrose. We were neighbors. And, and we, arch rivals on the football field. We, we didn't know we were neighbors. But uh, Wakefield was a great town to grow up in. But... You know, the world I'm from, Ken, nobody talks about mental health. Nobody. Just too awkward. And so I didn't know anything about it. I might recognize it at the extreme, but beyond that, I didn't. And so when my wife and I had our children, we had two boys, uh, we didn't know anything about mental health. And when my oldest son, then 13, started to suffer with anxiety and depression, we, we didn't see it. And he was really able and smart. He was a great artist. He had a lot of friends. He played incessantly in the neighborhood. So it seemed very normal to us. And when we saw things that now I might recognize differently, we always had a common sense explanation for it. 
and sometimes common sense is not the answer. And uh, my son was very smart as he started to go through school. We noticed some things, but we always had an explanation. Then he went off to college, sort of drinking in college, and kids drink in college, so it wasn't like no one's ever done that before. But his seemed more serious, and then he got a master's degree, and at that point he was living with us for a while, getting his master's in Boston. She had to be drinking a lot, and he didn't want to acknowledge it, and we didn't know what to do with it. And eventually we went to see the alcohol people and told them, and they said, your son's an alcoholic, and you better start dealing with that. My son thought it was ridiculous, by the way. He said, Dad, if I didn't have these feelings, I wouldn't be drinking. And they would say, look, every alcoholic has a reason they drink. And so they said to us in the final analysis, Ken, here's your choice. You can put him out of your house. Maybe he'll hit bottom and turn his life around because he's really talented. Or you can let him stay in your house. He's going to die drinking there. And so we didn't know that it was a mental health problem. I look back now, and I failed him in a lot of ways. I see that now. But we didn't know it at the time, and so we put him out, which was a mistake. He went to rehab, which didn't help. Now I know why. And ultimately, we brought him home, and nothing had changed. And so I think he was scared to death we'd put him out again, and he knew he couldn't go out again. So one night when he had been drinking, he assaulted me, took me to the hospital, ultimately took him to prison. I was chief justice for some of that time. It was it's a horrible time in my family's life. The good news is, as a result of that nightmare, uh, I started to learn a whole lot more about what was going on. Uh, my son started to get real help uh, in the prison, and it turned his life around. It was dramatic. And he's been out now for a lot of years. He has had not one drop of alcohol in all that time. He said, Dad, I was never an alcoholic. I didn't understand what was going on. I do now. And sadly, I do now, too. So we had a good, a good result from a horrible story. And so I'm trying to say to families, I understand what you may be going through. It may not be the same problem. But it's made me pretty empathetic to the situation of other families. And my travels, can have opened my eyes about the prevalence of mental health problems and mm-hmm. the lack of a system to deal with them. What, what are some of the warning signs that you missed uh, along the way with your son? Well, I'll tell you, uh, this campaign that I've been on for uh, seven years now almost uh, was a genius of a psychologist in Maryland. She wanted people to know the five most common signs of mental illness. Not diagnostic, but it's hard to have a mental health problem without some or more of these signs. I knew none of them, and I'll just review them quickly. And some of them applied to my son. Um, the first sign is not feeling like yourself. And people who know you can know that you're not like yourself, but certainly you know that you don't feel quite right, not for a day or an hour, but for a while. Uh, Or you are agitated, not having a bad day, we all have those, but on a persistent basis, Mm -hmm. and you didn't used to be, but now you're kind of cranky all the time, or you jump at people. Uh, Are you withdrawing from the life that you were in? My son was, and I didn't see it. I saw it as drawing, he was in his room drawing, but he was really withdrawing. So withdrawing isn't being shy, it's being withdrawn. 
um, not caring for yourself, your personal hygiene changes. It used to be pretty neat and organized, but now people say, what's happening? They don't look the same. My son had some of that going on, mm-hmm. but you know he was a kid, so I thought, well, that's what teenagers are like. And oftentimes that's all it is, but sometimes it's not. And the last sign of the five is feeling hopeless. I don't mean sad, we're all sad, that's a normal human emotion, but feeling hopeless, I don't mean for a half a day or a day, I mean for a persistent period of time, and years later, I think that was true of my son. It's true of a lot of people with mental health challenges, but my son, as are most people who suffer, they get pretty good at hiding it. Mm, I mean, that's what we do because you don't want to tell people, and so you don't want people asking you, so you pretend everything's fine. And oftentimes, people are not fine. No, exactly right. John Broderick uh, is our guest. He is the uh, Senior Director of External Affairs at Dartmouth Health, formerly served as Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, and his new book is called... uh, Back dro- what what is it called? Uh, back, 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 I can't back roads and highways. I can't even read my own writing. No. Back roads and highways. My journey to discovery on uh, mental health, and uh, it is a it is a must read uh, for for anyone really. Uh, Thank you. You, you don't have to have children necessarily because uh, everyone uh, you know could suffer from uh, you know mental health. Uh, why, and, and I know we're going to come up to a break very shortly here and really can't get uh, started on this, but a- after the break, uh, let, let's talk about why there has never been the, the emphasis on mental health that there has been on physical health. I think there are more people out there concerned with the health of their car than, <laughs> than they are their mental health. It's, it's it, very, very true. That's something I've been trying to change. It's a cultural shift that we need. Yeah. And if we do that, we'll help a lot of lives and save a lot of families. No doubt about it. We have to take a quick break. John Broderick is with us. And again, uh, Back Roads and Highways is the name of the new book, available at, at Gibson's. And uh, uh, is it uh, available online as it's well? It's available on Amazon as yeah. well. Very good. Kale & Company Live, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. You can find your plan at DeltaDentalCoversMe.com. Back with more right after these words on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com, presented by our good friends at Northeast Delta Dental. John Broderick is with us today. John, the Senior Director of External Affairs at Dartmouth Health, formerly served as Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, and now is uh, on a mission to change the way we think about mental health and uh, mental health awareness and uh, before the break, we were talking about the fact that there's certainly much more emphasis in this society on someone's physical health than there is on their mental health. And, and I, I do believe that people, uh, more people are worried about the, the health of their motor vehicles than they are the, their, their own mental health. 
Uh, do you find that to be true? It's always suffered in that way, Ken. It's never been a topic people wanted to talk about, in part because people, I believe, and for some years it was true, that there was very little treatment available, mm. so why go there? Uh, Evidence-based treatment works, and in the last 20 years especially, that's become more and more true. So people should understand that, but, but it's still an awkward topic uh, it used to be like that for cancer. I remember my mother used to whisper the word cancer mm -hmm. when I was little, and I never understood that. And some people weren't as brave as my mom. They would say he or she has the C word. It was like that for age, HIV, when that first happened in the early 80s. And now people say, I take the cocktail every day. I'm doing much better. Mental health has a bad history, um, and the language never was helpful, so we... We put people in what we call lunatic asylums. Uh, we put people in nut houses. I mean, that's not a compliment. Uh, in Concord, New Hampshire, and Pleasant Street, the state hospital at one point had 2,300 people there. Mm. And the bar to get into that place was pretty low. Today, it's a danger to yourself or others. But back then, if you were just misbehaving or acting oddly, yeah. we put you there. We didn't have much treatment. So it was, it was always something you couldn't talk about um, because it was shameful. It was seen, and to some extent still is in some quarters, as a character flaw, a personal weakness. If you were only a better person, Ken, if you were a stronger person, you wouldn't have those problems. Right, right. We say foolish things to people. People who are depressed will say to them, oh, snap out of it. If somebody had diabetes, we would never say that. Correct. And yeah. so it's that odd thing that we just aren't comfortable with. We don't understand it. And I was part of that, so I'm not trying to be righteous. But when it struck my own family, and then I started to go on the road and talk to thousands of kids, I realized that it's an everywhere, everyday problem. And the only solution to it, because we don't have a mental health system in this country, Ken, the only solution to it is to start by talking about it normalizing it, demythologizing it. Uh, my son has told me many times, he's, he's right. He said, Dad, everyone with a mental health problem, I don't care what it is, I don't care how old they are, they all have two things in common. Number one, they didn't ask for the problem. That's true. And number two, they don't deserve the problem. And that's true, too. Mm -hmm. And the third thing that people need to know is most mental health problems can be successfully treated it's the third part that we pay no attention to and we need to. Mm, absolutely. So, you know, it, it seems to me, and I know you, you talked about this uh, uh, when I uh, had the opportunity to hear you at, uh, at Gibson's a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you're talking about the, the fact that there is so much pressure on youngsters these days to yes. not only succeed, but to be in to organize sports or organize dance or organize this, or organize that. And, you know, when we grew up, you in Wakefield, me in Melrose, uh, I mean, we, we had a lot more uh, time to just, you know, play with our friends in, in disorganized, unorganized activities and, you know, come in when the, and the street lights came on and, and that sort of thing, play in the, at the local fields that were open. And uh, it, it was, a, I think, uh, maybe a lot more happier time. Uh, back in yes. our era. I, you know, Ken, it's funny you say that because I think that's 100% correct. In all my travels around New England, it could be at a private exclusive school or poor public high school, the kids are under stresses that we don't remember. 
this generation of kids, by the way, I love these kids. They are smart and they are worldly wise. Yeah. And yeah. They, they're much less judgmental than any prior generation, but they have problems that prior generations didn't have, not their fault. What I think is causing a lot of the anxiety and depression uh, is the stressors these kids have. A childhood that I fondly remember, mine was 12 years long. My mother would say it was 14, but <laughs> I thought it was 12, 10. But I benefited, as you did, from the inefficient use of time. It was yeah. called play. Right. It was called play. <laughs> I knew all my neighbors. I knew their parents. I, I played in my neighborhood. I did well in school, but not because I felt stressed to do that well. I wasn't over-organized. I played Little League Baseball from April to June. That was it. Uh, people could play multiple varsity sports in high school. Today, you're training all year long for whatever the sport. Kids believe today, from my experience talking to thousands, that if you get a 3.8 when you graduate from high school, your life will be so different than if you had a 3.1. And you and I know that has nothing to do with that. If you're bright and able and can deal with people, you'll get where you want to go. I just think as a society, we need to take our foot off the gas. The last thing I would say, Ken, is uh, the virtual world, which has a lot of benefits. Trust me, I'm not anti-tech. But I didn't live on an iPhone or an iPad. Social emotional growth comes eyeball to eyeball. Today's kids, again, not their fault. It's the world we're living in. Someone's got to stop the film and evaluate it. Kids today are spending anywhere from 30 to 50% of their waking hours looking at the palm of their hand. And I didn't have that option, so I had to look up. <laughs> and right. when you look up, you grow emotionally and socially. Um, so we need to have that conversation, too. Yeah, no, no question about that. So how does this country uh, go about building a mental health system that uh, we can all benefit from? I don't think it's complex, but it's going to take a change of attitude, a change of heart, and a change in our culture. Um, it's doable. It was that way for cancer once, Ken. We didn't always have a threshold for right. breast cancer or AIDS or ALS. Yeah. We do now because we all grew up. And we started to realize that my mother, my sister, my cousin could have breast cancer. And we started to talk about that. Everybody on who's listening today knows the color for breast cancer awareness, everyone. But they don't know the color for mental health, most probably, and that's the gap I'm talking about. The, the mechanics of it are this, by way of illustration. We have 1.4 million lawyers in America. I'm a lawyer, even I think that mm -hmm. may be enough. <laughs> we have 675,000 CPAs in America. We have 28,000 psychiatrists. Not because we couldn't attract more, but we don't pay them well. They're some of the lowest paid members of the medical profession. Most people don't think that. Uh, they also don't get reimbursed at the same rate that the orthopod does who fixes your broken arm. We don't have enough mental health counselors, nurse practitioners, practicing psychologists, because we don't incentivize people to go into that field, and we don't compensate them. The other thing I would say, among advanced nations in the world, we are near the bottom in terms of mental health opportunities. Canada's far better than mm -hmm. we do. Uh, it's integrated in their workforce, in their communities. It's part of everyday life. And once we recognize that one out of five adults 
Think about that. One out of five adults and one out of five adolescents in America has a diagnosable mental health problem. Mm. Almost all of those can be treated successfully, but not if you can't get to treatment. And so half of the kids I hug, statistically it's true too, half of the kids I hug are getting help nowhere. And one, so that doesn't, it's not like a common cold. It right. doesn't just get better. Right. One out of five. That's an alarming statistic. And if you do the math on one out of five adults and one out of five kids, it's tens of millions of people. More people have a mental health problem. Again, almost all of which is treatable. More people have a mental health problem than have cancer, diabetes, ALS combined. Um, and we act like it's four people in our town. And because of that, people are afraid to say, I'm not doing well. Now, again, so I don't seem righteous here, I probably would have been one of those people. But when it came into my own family and I found out that I'd failed my own son because of my ignorance, I realized that when given the opportunity, I would take it. And I didn't design this Five Signs campaign and Dartmouth Health makes it possible for me, but it has so opened my eyes, Ken. And I know we can change it if we want to. I can't do it by myself. But I know people listening today, they know someone or love someone with a mental health problem. I'd be shocked if that weren't true. Mm, I'm sure it is. John Broderick is with us here on Kale & Company today, Senior Director of External Affairs at Dartmouth Health, formerly served as the Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court as well. We will take a break. Kale & Company continues right here on WKXL and htalkradio.com. Presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And John Broderick is here. Very pleased to have John here this morning. And uh, John is the uh, Senior Director of External Affairs at uh, Dartmouth Health, uh, formerly served as Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court. His new book is Back Roads and Highways, My Journey to Discovery on mental health, and I and I will imagine that you have discovered quite a bit in your years on the road. It's it's been the most fulfilling work of my whole life, Ken. Yeah, and I don't say that lightly. What's really humbling, and it's not me; it's just this topic. And when I go to high school, certainly when I started, I had no idea. I'm probably the oldest guy that's ever spoken to them. So my first thought was, they're probably saying, whose grandfather is this guy? Why is he bothering us? Uh, that, was my, that was a film I was playing in my head. But the minute you start talking about mental health, and in my own case, I would be quite vulnerable in my discussions about my own mistakes and what I should have seen and didn't see. And also, I think, optimistic because my own family's journey has ended on a very high note at times when that seemed impossible. And when you are vulnerable in front of younger people, sometimes older people too, but especially younger people, uh, they will become vulnerable to you. So they return the privilege. And uh, over those years, I have literally hugged 
thousands mm. of kids. And I went to those schools not knowing anybody. I speak for 40 minutes, and then it's like I've known them my whole life. And they come up and they share with you. I, I have had kids tell me, as young as the sixth grade, that they are going to kill themselves, mm. and I believe them. Wow. I've had kids in high schools who have told me they have been hospitalized for suicide attempts. Uh, it's an everyday problem. Let me give you a couple of stats, which I know are true. I wouldn't have believed it, but I do now. 2019, the Center for Disease Control issues uh, questionnaires. They do it every two years. Mm -hmm. In 2019, 70 public high schools in New Hampshire responded. It's about 80 questions. It's pretty much fill in the blank. It's anonymous, so they don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. They just know your age and you're in school and whether you're male or female. In any event, in that survey, nationwide that year, 46% of high school girls in this country said they were depressed, 26% of high school boys. And the question isn't, are you depressed, yes or no? The question is, have you been sad or hopeless for two consecutive weeks or longer in the last 12 months so that you weren't able to engage in normal everyday activity? This is all before COVID, Ken. 2019, looking back to 2018, 25% of high school girls in that survey said they had given serious consideration, that's the question, to killing themselves in the previous 12 months. 15% of those girls said they had actually made plans to end their own life. 11.3% of high school girls across the country had attempted suicide one or more times. In New Hampshire, by the way, Ken, for that year, 2019, 8.3% of high school girls had attempted suicide one or more times, 8.9% in Maine. And I'm pretty confident, and I'll bet you are too, that in our childhood, in our high school years, those numbers would have made no sense to anyone. Mm -hmm. Today, they're pretty common. And so when kids confide in you as they have in me, not because I'm special, just because I'm vulnerable and I'm present, when they tell you things like that, you think, what are we doing about this? Do people realize what I now see? In uh, a year and a half ago, the Surgeon General of the United States described what was going on with youth mental health as a national crisis. Now, it wasn't made any better by COVID, as we know, but it didn't start because of COVID. The American Academy of Pediatrics, July 2020, described what was going on with youth mental health in our country as a national emergency. I don't have that sense. I mean, I do, because I'm out talking to yeah. kids, but what are we doing about that? And uh, when I go out, Ken, by the way, I go to speak to kids, they don't have any choice, so I have to show up. <laughs> but I say to those kids, I said, you know, you, don't, you didn't have a choice about coming here today, but you do have a choice on whether you listen to me or not, and they listen. Try to get parents out at night. It's almost impossible. Mm. If it's a sporting event or a National Honor Society induction, they come out. I'm not being critical. Parents have a lot of stressors in their own lives, but it's hard to get them. And one of the reasons I wrote the book and by the way, I make no money on the book. I want you to know that. The money, any profit goes to a mental health awareness fund at DH. I don't get a dime from it. And that's fine with me. I didn't write it to make money. But I wrote it so that parents and grandparents could read it. Because I assume they would have been a lot like I was before I started this campaign. 
and they think everything's fine in their own house or in their own neighborhood or maybe in their own schools. Right. It's usually not what they think. Yeah. Boy, those statistics that you uh, bring forth are uh, truly incredible. I mean, uh, mind-boggling, really. And, uh, and, and and COVID, has COVID uh, certainly added to the anxiety of, of many people? It has. And uh, that, that's probably caused a, a lot of uh, uh, mental strains for so so many in our in our country and in our world in general yeah and not just kids obviously adults right. too yeah. but kids uh, you know they're 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 growing they're maturing their brain is developing the kids are not mini adults to be very blunt about it uh, they're growing and so for a lot of kids the isolation mm. yeah. was terrible uh, the, the grief and loss they lost opportunities. A lot of these kids in high school, you know, not the end of the universe, but they didn't have a junior prom or a senior prom. You can't go back and do that. So a lot of those kind of watershed moments they lost, some of them lost parents or grandparents or sure. grieving on that. But what I want people to understand, because I do now, the baseline before COVID was not good. The baseline numbers I just gave you, that was the 2019 survey. Right. It's been made worse. Uh, on Valentine's Day, Ken, uh, 2021, in New Hampshire, Valentine's Day, now it was during COVID, there were 51 kids and adolescents in community hospital emergency rooms having acute mental health problems. And the community hospitals are great, by the way. They're the backbone of healthcare, but they're not mental health facilities. And so some of those young people were put in a lockdown room for hours, some for days and some for weeks because there were no beds available. That process is called boarding. And somehow we think that's okay because we're not jumping on that problem. Health and Human Services is doing more now, but it's hard and we need to continue to do more to get kids help. And one thing I've learned from clinicians over my time doing this is if you intervene early, uh, and half of all mental illness, by the way, arises by age 14, half, mm. two-thirds by age 23. So if you are proactive, you know what you're looking at, you have services available, you can change and save a lot of lives. If you don't find it until you're 35, you can still get treatment. But if you've been dealing with it for 20 years, you've adjusted your life to your mental illness and and so it's harder, but still possible. I still recommend people seek treatment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If there is treatment available, uh, and that's that's one of the the big issues, the it, lack thereof. It, it's a huge issue. Can I had a woman come up to me one day. I spoke to about fifty HR directors, and she followed me out of this two story building. She said, "Can I come down the elevator with you?" It was one floor, and the door closed, and she burst into tears hysterical. Mm. It was alarming. And so then we got to the lobby and I said, my God, what's going on? So she told me about her son who she believed was going to commit suicide. And from what she told me, I think she was probably correct. And he was going off to college in three weeks. And I said, you really need to get help. You know that, right? She said, oh, I know that. She said, I can't get in anywhere for weeks and weeks and weeks. I'll already be in college. And I worked at Dartmouth Health, and they are also oversubscribed, so I don't want to mislead people. Uh, but I said, look, let me call. You shouldn't have to go to a funeral. 
So I called, and they made arrangements to see him within a few days. And when I called to tell her that, Ken, if I had said to her, ma'am, I put a check for a million dollars in your mailbox, that's how she reacted. Yeah. And I have people write me, call me. I don't know them. I can't solve every problem, obviously, but I know that it's hard to get in. And people wait weeks and weeks and weeks. And yet, if today, here at the station or in a high school, somebody fell and broke their leg, we would call 911. Yeah. There'd be an ambulance here within 10 minutes, which is good. I'm not critical. But if somebody has an acute mental health problem, who do you call? Yeah. When did they come? Where do you go? Who pays for that? And for how long? It's 2023, Ken. Yeah. That discussion should not be happening. That should have been solved. No question about that. John Broderick is with us today on uh, Kale and Company. And if you missed uh, any uh, part of this program or just uh, simply want to hear it again, it'll be repeated tonight at uh, 7 o'clock. And uh, John's book is Back Roads and Highways, My Journey to Discovery on Mental Health. And we'll be back with more uh, John Broderick and uh, discussion of mental health right after these words. Kale and Company is presented by Northeast Delta Dental right here on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. John Broderick is our guest. I know that name is familiar to many of you. Senior Director of External Affairs at Dartmouth Health and formerly served with Chief Just- as Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court. How long were you Chief Justice? Well, I became Chief Justice. I was actually Chief Justice twice, Ken. I'm yeah. the only person in the history of the state. Yeah. Uh, I became Chief Justice for the first time uh, in January of 2004 by statute. It was always the governor's choice, but they passed the statute saying the senior judge, that uh, would have been me, when the current chief retired, would automatically become chief. And so I became chief. The governor, then Governor Benson, challenged it saying, wait a minute, I got to choose the chief, not the legislature. And so they filed a lawsuit and he won the lawsuit. So in April, I was no longer chief. <laughs> and I was driving up north that night, and he called me, and he said, John, uh, uh, you're not the chief anymore. I said, I know that, Governor. I heard that today. Congratulations on your lawsuit. I thought he was right. I wasn't involved in the suit, but I thought he was right. So he said, well, that's why I'm calling you. I want to make you chief justice. And I said, you're just feeling sorry for me right now. I said, Governor, it's your choice. He said, no, I'm serious. If I nominate you, will you accept it? So I said, of course. So in June of 2004, I became chief for the second time. The first time it was unconstitutional. The second time it was constitutional. I stayed there until the end of 2010 as chief. I could have stayed into 2017 as chief, but I'd been on the court 15 years by 2010, and it was a great privilege, believe me. Um, But I missed portions of my former life. Being a judge is a phenomenal responsibility and a privilege, but the job comes with with uh, with isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand that. I'm not complaining. I knew that. But after 15 years, I thought, let me try something else. And so I left uh, beginning of the very end of 2010. Wow. And have been with uh, yeah, you, you're 
current job with Dartmouth uh, since that time? Well, you know, what happened to him when I left, I didn't know what I was going to do, actually. I just knew I needed to do something different. And uh, people would call me and say, I can't believe you're leaving. What are you doing? I said, I have no idea. It was one of the first times in my life it was okay not to know. Yeah. And I said, well, I've got to drive somewhere. And so the law school, UNH Law School, uh, asked me if I was interested in being dean. So I had never considered that. And so I interviewed, and they hired me. So I was at the law school from January of 11 to maybe the spring of 15. Uh-huh. And then I left the law school. And within about six or eight months, Dartmouth Health reached out because I was doing this mental health campaign. Yeah, yeah. And they liked it, and they had been one of the funders for it. So I'm so grateful to them. They said, would you like to work here full time? I said, what would I be doing? And they said, well, you can continue the campaign. We'll have you do other things, but continue that. And so I kind of had divided time, but I was full-time. And then after about a year there, they said, why don't you do the mental health stuff full-time? Because I was getting requests to speak. I never invited myself, but people would invite you. So they made it possible. So I did that. I'm, I'm still doing that. Terrific, yeah, and uh, doing a lot of good. You've touched the lives of, you know, uh, probably hundreds of thousands of youngsters now uh, in your journeys, not only in New Hampshire, but uh, throughout New England. Well, you know something, it's been a privilege, uh, and I realize too, Ken, uh, but for my family's story, I would never be doing this. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I would have thought mental illness was whatever I used to think it was. It's so enlightened me now. And I know what's possible. I know what we can be doing and should be doing. And this generation, by the way, I love these kids. They know what I know. I learn from them. And they also know that we're not doing it right, and we're not. When these kids were now 15 or 16 or 35, we will have a mental health system in our country because they will insist on it. What I've been trying to do is hasten the change because I don't want to wait 20 more years. I don't want to hear about teenage suicides anymore. I don't want to see lives that could be more promising but are crippled by mental health problems. Exactly, and you've been doing and will continue to do some uh, terrific work. We're talking uh, off the air about, uh, you know, the pressures on youngsters these days put put on them by their parents in, in many cases. Uh, you, you see it in sports. Uh, we, that's what we were talking about in, in the sense that there's so much money in professional sports these days that uh, I think every parent feels that if their their child has any athletic ability whatsoever, that they're going to go on and, and make these millions of dollars in professional sports. And we all know that the percentage of those people who are able to make these millions in professional sports is very minuscule. Oh, it's, it's a fraction of a fraction. The number of high school athletes who play varsity sports who get any financial aid because of their sports at the college level is under 2%. And yet, a lot of parents, it's coming from a loving place, and there's some fear involved, which is college is really expensive. So if Billy or Susie is really good at some sport in high school, they'll get either a free ride or Mm -hmm. a pretty good stipend. That's usually not true. What I think we're doing, it's coming from a loving place, believe me. I know that. Parents love their kids as much as ever. But we are over-organized in childhood. We really are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And parents are working 24-7, all the walls are down, Ken, between work and home and home and school. 
The number of iPhones on in bedrooms in this state after midnight, kids who are ninth graders, would stun people. Mm. So kids are are never unwinding. It's like growing up in New York City. It's 24-7, yeah. and that comes at a price, and I hug some of that in gyms and auditoriums all over New England. We could fix it if we wanted to have community discussions. There's a movie, by the way, I'd love to recommend. I, I have nothing to do with the film. It's called Chasing Childhood. It makes the point you and I have been chatting about. And I wish it was shown in every high school auditorium. It's $500 to rent it, but it seems like a lot of money until you say, if I show it to 500 parents, pretty yeah. good investment. And it's 75 minutes. It makes the point you and I were just chatting about, about childhood. The guy behind the film is a psychologist at Boston College. And I wouldn't have believed it six years ago. And now I think it's so spot on. Mm. And we all need to be willing to rethink childhood because yeah. we're some kids do great a lot of kids aren't doing great yeah very very true chasing childhood you should look into that folks if you have uh, anything to do with a school or a parents association that would be a terrific suggestion how is your son doing these days my son is doing extremely well um the, my son, who I said had this drinking issue, which we thought was alcoholism, I don't think he was ever an alcoholic. He he hasn't had a drop of alcohol in 17 years. Oh. He said, Dad, I'm not that guy anymore. I don't have that tug anymore. I don't feel like that guy. Um, he's one of the brightest, most talented people I know. He's an enormously gifted artist. Um, an illustrator, I love him. And he's proud of what I'm doing, which makes me proud to be doing it. He's taught me so much, and um, I love him. And, you know, I failed him. I mean, I didn't mean to, but I failed him. And because of that, maybe because of that, uh, and his motivation, we've been able to help some other people. Mm, yeah. Has he ever seen you in action with uh, com communicating with the youngsters? I, I, tr and, I, tr I tried to talk him into yeah. coming with me, actually, yeah, and yeah. to speaking himself. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, he, he still thinks, Dad, you know, people are going to think ill of me. I said, well, then that's their issue. I made mistakes, too. He's watched my tapes when I speak at schools, mm -hmm. and he loves what I'm doing. Um, he would be a powerful speaker himself, to be honest. And he's really smart. Um, but he's so far resisted that. I think it's not that he doesn't support what I'm doing. He just doesn't want to be the focus, I guess, yeah. in, in a way, which is too bad because the guy he is and has always been is a wonderful person. And so the negative about mental illness is we conflate the illness and the person. You are mentally ill. No, no, no. You're a person who has a mental health problem. And we don't do that. We don't say you are cancer. We say you have cancer. When it comes to mental illness, we make you the illness. And it's destroying people's uh, emotional health. So we need to grow up, Ken. Yeah. We can if we want. Yes, absolutely. Well, the message you bring is one that is uh, so important to, to our society today. And it, it's something that uh, you know should have been, been brought to the forefront many, many years ago. And, uh, well, John, we just admire the work that you do, 
keep it up. I know you will. I know you will. You probably have another engagement or two today as well. Uh, the book that you can pick up at Gibson's and through Amazon is uh, Back Roads and Highways, My Journey to Discovery on Mental Health. John Broderick, it has been uh, a pleasure to have you with us today. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Kale & Company Live, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. And once again, uh, if you missed any part of this program or simply want to hear it again or have somebody else uh, hear the program, it'll be on uh, right after 7 o'clock tonight here on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Have a great Tuesday, everybody.